We're going to uh, pick up where we left off last week. Um, we're going to be studying a section of Revelation again tonight, but we're going to get to that in just a little bit. I need to spend the first part just kind of recapping where we left off and pulling a couple of things out from the section we were in last. So go with me real quickly to Revelation chapter 21 and look at verse 5. Revelation 21 verse 5. And it says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. All right? So Jesus, uh, as you know, in God the Father, they're on the throne. And John hears the Father say, Write this down. And as we touched on the last time we were together, was John not to write anything else down? Of course. He was, all the other stuff he was to write down as well. But when God takes the time to say, hey, make sure that you don't miss this, it's an important thing. And he says, it's done. And to the thirsty, I will give, it says, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And I, I want us to understand the gospel a little bit more tonight, hopefully. Please hear the words, it is done. Salvation is already paid for. It's already been finished in the sense that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the whole world. All we need to do now is what? Be th realize, our thirst realize we're thirsty. Is be thirsty. That's why the, the, uh, Jesus himself taught in the, in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. The Bible actually talks about the fact that everyone's poor in spirit, aren't we? The whole world is guilty before God. There's no one righteous, not even one. Our righteousness is as filthy rags, the scripture says. The, the, the message is that every one of us is guilty before God because of sin. And blessed are those who realize they're poor in spirit. Everybody is spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who grieve over that. And that's why the message of the gospel is not if you ask God, he'll forgive you. The message of the gospel is God has already forgiven you. He, Jesus, God so loved the world, he sent his only son. He died on the cross to cover the sins of the world. Now you must now receive. He said to the thirsty. Did you catch that in Revelation 21? To the thirsty, I will give of the, river, the waters of life or springs of water that, without payment. So go with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. Now it says, Now when Jesus learned that the uh, Pharisees had heard that Jesus had, was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Now let me stop there real quick. The scripture says he had to go through Samaria. Did he really have to go through Samaria? Because, as you know, the Jews wouldn't go through Samaria. If they were going from Jerusalem and the area of Judea up to Galilee, they would go across the Jordan River to the east, go up, and then cut back across. They wouldn't even go through the areas of Samaria. So why does the Bible say that Jesus had to go through Samaria? Obedience to the Father. John chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, My Father is at His work to this very day, and I too am working. Verse 19, He says, The Son can do only what His Father tells Him to do, what He sees the Father doing. He was led of the Spirit in everything that He did, and the Spirit of God had Him go through Samaria. You're going to see in a second why. Verse 5, So He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. 
So Jesus, Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it you, that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get all that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. By the way, isn't that one of those further verses that show us that salvation is secure? If you've truly been saved, if you've received of the Spirit, you'll never be thirsty again. You can't lose that salvation, and it will spring up into eternal life. Again, go to John chapter 7. It gets even more clear. In John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. In John chapter 7, verse 37. It says in verse, uh, well, let's go to verse 35 and we'll, we'll, we'll go there. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's chapter six. I'm sorry. I was reading chapter six, verse 35. I know that some of you are going, wait a minute. That's chapter six. Now jump over to chapter seven, verse 37. All right. Chapter seven, verse 37. That was my fault. On the last day of the feast... The great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and what? And drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So now we see even more clearly that the scripture teaches us that if anyone's thirsty, let him come to Jesus and drink. And whoever does out of him will flow rivers of living water. And what is that rivers of living water? It is the Holy Spirit. See, a lot of times we get confused as to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because some people are teaching that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something different from salvation. But the Bible teaches that in the day in which we get saved, we are put into Christ and he's put into us. And as Jesus himself said, on that day, you'll realize that I'm in you and you're in me and I'm in the Father. The word baptized means to just dip in or to dunk under. And that's why whenever I would baptize people, I'd always say, look, the method I believe the Bible teaches is to immerse you because that's what the word means. It's to dip and to dunk under. It's to put into. And when you get saved, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit at that moment. It's not a separate occurrence that some people try to teach. At the moment you trust Christ and God seals the deal with his spirit, he puts the spirit in you. You're in him. You're swimming, if you will. You've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And out of you now begins this process of God says will begin to well up within them rivers of living water. And that most of us as Christians have never really learned to walk in the Spirit or to rest in the Spirit or to live by the Spirit or if we live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Because most of us have been taught that Jesus died for us and he rose from the dead. And if we believe, then we'll go to heaven. And now I need to live for Jesus. Oh, you can't. This, this whole salvation thing was 
begun by His Spirit to draw you, accomplished by His Spirit by saving you, sealed by the Spirit by living inside of you, and now we need to daily learn to say no to our flesh and yes to the Spirit. Isn't that what the Scripture teaches us in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. Lay your flesh on the altar and renew your mind, and then you'll be able to know what the will of God is. In other words, you'll be able to follow the Spirit and be led of the Spirit. And so, as we saw back in Revelation chapter 21, Jesus says, and the Father here says, it's done. Salvation's paid for. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The gospel is simply this. God loves the world. He's already died for the sins of the world. He sent His Son to pay that price. He did. He rose from the dead, and He's now offering salvation to whoever will come. And if you come, you go to Jesus and you just say, Jesus, give me this living water. Give me the Holy Spirit. Give me this salvation. Give me this righteousness. How do we do it? By faith, without any need of any payment on our behalf. And you know, the Bible's been teaching that even in the Old Testament. It's not a New Testament thing. Go with me real quickly to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 verses 1 through 11. Listen to what God said through the prophet Isaiah many, many years ago. Isaiah 55, verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing which, for which I sent it. All along the gospel's been, come, you don't even need any money, come and receive it, come to God. Now let me ask you a quick question then. According to what we've just seen, where the scripture says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And I offer this to you for free, come and buy it without money. How does the scripture then teach us that those who pray a prayer, if you will, of just, you know, what we call fire insurance, you know, oh, Jesus, save me, forgive me of my sins. How can we know from scripture that the Bible teaches that those people that just didn't really mean it, but they were just say, hey, you know, I'll just cover my bases. How can we know that that the offer of salvation is not theirs to, or they haven't received it? Can anybody see what I'm talking about here? What's missing in their, on their side? No, not an evidence, not afterwards, prior to they're even saying. Come 
No, you who are the thirsty are the ones who really realize I need salvation. There are some people that my wife always gets mad at me. I'll say I'm thirsty. She'll say, here's some water. I'm like, I'm not that thirsty. I want soda. Because as you know me, I always have my 44 ounce soda with me all the time. And I'll say I'm thirsty and she'll say, well, here's some water. And I always jokingly say, well, I'm not that thirsty. And you know what? There's a lot of people over the years who have said, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll trust Jesus as my Savior. But they, they weren't thirsty. They weren't really thirsty. Now, is it our job to figure out who is and who isn't? No, just leave that to the Lord. But I'm just going to say this to you. When you're thirsty, you know it. And when you know it, you'll go straight to him. You don't even need a preacher. When you're really thirsty, you, you can get saved wherever you are, however God's drawing you, when you get thirsty. And trust the Holy Spirit to do his work. Our job is to do what? Be obedient and share as his ambassadors the message of the gospel, the good news. It's done. You don't have to do anything to be made right with God. He took care of it all himself. You just have to realize you need it and receive it and leave the rest to the Lord. Now, go back to chapter 21 and look at verse 7 of Revelation. Revelation 21, verse 7. It gets even better. By the way, you and I can't make anybody thirsty. That's the Spirit's job. That's not ours. Revelation 21, verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. All right, look at that again. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. By the way, uh, the scripture says, whoever conquers will have the heritage of being the child of God. Now, we've all heard this before. You might not remember where. Does anybody remember where we've heard this before? In John chapter 1, we're going to end up with that one. I heard it over here. Who said it? In the letters. Go back to Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Actually, to each of the churches, a promise to him who conquers was given. I'm going to show you six of the seven promises. In Revelation chapter 2, look at verse 7. Revelation 2 verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers... I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. By the way, you're going to see that later on in our study when we get to seeing that the tree of life is in the new city, in the new Jerusalem, and it's actually so big it's on both sides of the river. It's pretty cool. But we'll get to that in a little bit later. In Revelation 2, look at verse 11. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Remember, the second death is the lake of fire, and that's for all those who are unrighteous. They're the ones that go there for eternity, including Satan himself. Go to Revelation chapter 2, look at verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. All right, look at Revelation chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Revelation 3, verses 5 and 6. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Go to Revelation chapter 3, look at verses 12 and 13. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. 
Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. One last one. Go to Revelation 3, 21 through 22. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So at the beginning of this book of Revelation, as Jesus was speaking through John to the churches, he said, offered over and over and over to him who conquers. And he makes all these awesome promises. Back here at the end of the book of Revelation, we see the similar promise. Chapter 21, verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. So I got to ask you a question then. Who is it that conquers? How do we conquer? I'm sorry? By, by faith. I want you to see what the scripture says. How we conquer is we're the victors, but we only do it not by standing firm to the end in our own strength, but we conquer by faith. I want you to see it. Go to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. These same people we were just talking about who are thirsty, who realize their need, who realize their, their need of salvation, and then they need God to give them righteousness and salvation, who come to Jesus. Those are the ones who come to him in faith, and those are the ones who conquers. 1 John chapter 5, look at verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, past tense. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. That's that same word, conquers. And, the, and, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Plain and simple, folks. You need to realize your need of salvation. You need to realize that you're thirsty and that you're a sinner and that you're separated from God because of it. But that's the good news. It's done. It's been paid for. God loves you. He's already paid for your sin. You just need to receive it. And whoever's thirsty, run to Jesus. Just say, Jesus, I need your salvation. I need your forgiveness. So some of you are probably sitting there saying, Jim, most of us here, we're all believers. Why are you telling us this? For two reasons. One, you're not the only ones listening. This, these messages are going all over the globe right now through the, through the Internet and the way that God's been blessing in that way. But at the same time, we're his ambassadors we're supposed to be going out and telling people as well. And you need to know what the gospel is. The gospel is that Jesus already died for the sins of the whole world. That doesn't mean the whole world goes to heaven. Only those who will receive the gift. It's offered, but God will not force anyone. And if you'll come to him in faith, if you would just turn to Jesus, he'll give you salvation. And to him who conquers, all of these promises will come true. He'll make you a pillar in the temple of God. We'll get to that later tonight. He'll give you a new name, the scripture says. He'll never blot your name out of the book of life. You'll be his child. That'll be your heritage. Go to John chapter 1. What was Jeff referencing just a second ago? John chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. The Gospel of John. By the way, has anybody noticed who wrote all of these things that we're just talking about? John. John wrote Revelation. John wrote 1 John. John wrote the Gospel of John. I think John understands all this because he actually got it preached to him face to face by Jesus himself. In John chapter 1, look at verses 1 through 13. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. We know who the Word is now, that's Jesus. In Him was life, and, in, and, the, life was, it was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. We know him as John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. Folks, I am hopefully being used to show you something here. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, according to Revelation 21, 7, what is your heritage? You are what? You're a child of God. According to Revelation 21, 7, you're a child of God. Don't miss that. If you're a child of God, what's your heritage? Eternal life? The new Jerusalem? If God's for you, who's against you? If while you were his enemy, he sent his son to die for you, how much more is God for you? Again, all I can say to you is, spend each morning when you get up receiving God's love for you. Go to his word and let him speak to you about how much he's for you. How much he's, you want to have a fun study? Just go on online and just type in how much more in the scriptures and find all the places that the scriptures talk about how much more, how much more, how much more. Because one of the saddest things is most Christians today walk around knowing they're saved, knowing they're going to heaven, but never really fully understanding the love of God. And I have found that when you really start to let that truth sink in, how much God loves you, everything else just starts to fall into place. Now, look at Revelation 21, verse 8, though. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns Sorry, the, the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. In the midst of all this awesome, hey, whoever's thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of him will spring, come the springs of water with life without payment. And, and, and here's their heritage. If anybody conquers, uh, they're going to be my child. Oh, but for cowardly, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion's going to be in the lake of fire. That's the second death. Um, the Bible says here in verse 8 that the rest will not be God's children. But what if you've done some of those things on that list? I'm not asking you to tell us that you have or you haven't, but what if you've done some of this stuff on the list? But let me ask you this one question. Is there anybody here that hasn't done anything on this list? We've all done something on this list, haven't we? We've all done something on this list. But we're in trouble then. Oh, no, we're not. Go with me again to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, go to verses 9 through 11. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Or you do, not, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, 
nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Thank God. It's not going to be according to what we've done, but by His grace. And that's all we need to do is tell people, by the way, you think you're not thirsty? You don't really think you need this? Go take a list of the things that God says people that do this don't go to heaven. Have you done any of those? Well, yeah. Well, then you're not going to get to go to heaven unless you've been washed, you've been forgiven, you've been justified. And how's that done? By the Spirit of God, when we acknowledge our need and we turn to Him and say, God, give me the salvation that you offer that Jesus has paid for. All right? Jump with me now back to Revelation. and Let's look, let's look at verses 9 through 27. I'm going to look at this section we're going to start breaking down over the next couple of weeks. Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 27. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east, three gates and on the north, three gates and on the south, three gates and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length and as, as same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, a hundred and forty-four cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, and the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, and the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord the God, Lord God the Almighty and the, the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, or, nor, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, as you can see, there's a lot that we're going to cover. We won't be able to finish all of this tonight. We'll carry it into next week. But let's start breaking this down. Here we see one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of God's wrath come and take John up in the spirit to a high mountain to show him the bride, the wife of the Lamb. But instead of seeing a woman, what does John see? I heard it. He sees a city, the new Jerusalem coming down. All right. Well, I'm going to ask you a question. How can a city be a bride when we have been told that we who are united with Christ are the bride of Christ? 
<laughs> We're definitely going to be in the city. Go ahead. Exactly. A city is made up of people. And actually, this isn't the first time we see the scriptures talk about people and a structure in the same way. Let me take you to a couple of places. But first of all, don't forget, uh, we've already seen that the city has 12 tribes inscribed on its gates and the 12 apostles as its foundation. And we've already done our study earlier. We've seen that the bride is made up of not just the church, but the bride is made up of all the saved from the nation of Israel and from the church. And of course, also from the tribulation period, those who get saved during that time period. Those are the ones whom God marries. But we also know that the scripture has taught us long before that people being described as a building or a structure is not a new concept. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Let me show you what I mean. 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verses 4 through 10. Excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to, to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So as Peter's talking to Christians, he said, we have been what? We are being what? Built up into a spiritual house. We're living stones. The cornerstone is Jesus. The living stones are us as he's building this spiritual house. But actually, it gets even more clear if you go back with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Remember, the church isn't the, only the bride of Christ. In, in eternity, the bride of Christ will be made up of the nation of Israel and the church, Jew and Gentile. And actually, Paul taught this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Look closely here. It's even more clear than Peter describes it, I think. It says, Therefore remember, chapter 11 of Ephesians 2, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, you Gentiles, alienated from the commonwealth of, wealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments, expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In other words, not only has God come to indwell us individually, as he's building this eternal people that are going to be his people, the nation of Israel and those who believed in him by faith and God's provision, and those who have been saved and those in the church who are made up of Jew and Gentile as he builds the church, and then also the tribulation saints, in eternity... All of the people that have been given righteousness because of their faith in God's provision through Jesus Christ. He's going to be building us all together. And yes, there's going to be an amazing, beautiful city, but it's going to be made up of people. And as you said, God, when he sees a city, sees people. And John's taken in the spirit up to this really high mountain. That's going to be something we have time to get to a little later. That is kind of cool. We may come back to. But he's taken in the spirit up to this really high mountain. And he's shown the bride, the wife of the lamb. And out of heaven comes down this amazingly beautiful city. And he says, there's the wife, the bride of the lamb. It's the new Jerusalem. And it is made up of who? Us, Jews and Gentiles. The saved from all of eternity are the ones who are going to be able to live in this city. Now, I want to take a quick second to to show you a rabbit many Christians like to chase. But you can't catch it. So I'm going to tell you, don't chase it. All right? This is just a little bit of warning. This will keep you from getting into arguments with other Christians. Because this is an area, something in here in Revelation 21, that most people love to argue about. You see, the Bible says that there's 12 gates in this city, three on each side. And on each gate is inscribed one of the names of the tribes of the people of Israel. But also the foundations are what? The 12 apostles of the Lamb. And there's great debate as to who the 12th apostle is. You see, remember, there were 12, but one of them was Judas. And Judas wasn't ever really one of them. He committed suicide. And the Bible, by the way, people try to think, well, well maybe Judas is in heaven. No, the Bible's very clear. Judas is not in heaven. The Bible says that he went where he belonged. Jesus himself described Judas as one who was a child of Satan from the beginning. Son of perdition. Folks, let me just tell you, Judas is not in heaven. So now the question is, is who's the 12th apostle? And there are love, lots of people who love to argue over this issue. For the sake of time, I won't turn you there, but some like to go to Acts chapter 1, verses 15 and following, where Peter stands up there in the upper room and, and from Scripture says, hey, uh, we got to replace Judas, and they pick Matthias to, to replace him. Others try to say it's Paul, because he describes himself as the least of the apostles, chosen at, at, a, at a later time. But to be honest with you, if I were to take the time and really go down and chase this rabbit, because I could chase this rabbit for a while. The problem is, is you can't catch it. There is no answer. But I could walk through and show you there's way more than 12 that are described as apostles in the Bible. Barnabas is called an apostle. I could go on and on. The scriptures are very clear that there's more than just 12 apostles. So who's the 12th apostle? Here's the answer. We don't know, but Jesus does. And don't get in fights with each other over it. Just leave it alone. Because if you were to go back to Mark chapter 3, when God chose the first 12, if you go back and look at it, and if you want to look at it later on, I'll just give you the scripture passage. It's Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. It says that Jesus chose whom he desired, and he designated them to be the 12. And whoever God chooses to be that 12th one on the name of the foundation, it's up to him. Yes, sir. To the unknown apostle, I don't, I don't know if it'll say that, but uh, 
But let me just tell you, as Christians, and I've had people try to argue this with me already in other studies uh, about this issue. I, I have a personal opinion. I'm not going to share it with you because I don't know either. I think I'm right, but I'm not going to argue with you about it because I'll be honest with you, as much as I think I'm right, I don't know. And if the scripture doesn't say, we need to leave it alone. And one of the things that shows that we're in the flesh and not in the spirit is when Christians argue with each other. You want proof? Go with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Look at verse 22. It says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Paul also in Philippians chapter 3, when he talks about forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, said this. He said, all of you who are mature will have this attitude. But if you think differently than I do, the Lord will show you. It's not my job to win the argument. And so, folks, one of the things that I used to do when I was younger in the faith and younger in the ministry, because of God, how God's wired my brain, I used to love to argue scripture. Because I had a lot of bullets in my gun. And I used to, for hours, use all that the scripture that I could pull up to win the argument. Until one day God showed me that all I was doing was showing my flesh. Because the Lord's servant's not supposed to be quarrelsome. Gently instruct, share with them what you believe the Bible teaches, leave it alone from there. Because if anybody's really going to understand something and really get spiritual truth, who's going to have them get it? The Holy Spirit. Not your argument or the fact that you had one more verse than they had. And so avoid all of that kind of stuff. When we're young, we're passionate, we really want to go there. But the scripture all along said, don't do that. Don't do that. Paul spent most of his life dealing with the fact that even though he was an apostle chosen by God, even though he had seen Jesus face to face, even though he had been taught by Jesus in the wilderness of Damascus for three years, everybody questioned his apostleship, didn't they? They questioned whether or not he was in it for the money. He was under all these false accusations. And if you read Paul's letters, you'll see that he says, that's all right. I don't have to defend myself. I don't have to commend myself to anybody. I don't need a letter of recommendation to get somewhere. Uh, the Lord's got it. Oh, people are preaching to, to make me look bad. I don't care. The gospel's being preached. I'm gonna, everything God wants to do through me is going to get done. I'm not worried about man. And even if they say I'm a phony, that's okay. I know I'm not, and I'll be fine. And folks, you want to learn to rest? Give up on trying to impress people. The older we get, the more we realize how frail we are, don't we? I'm only 51. But I'm starting to realize that a whole lot more. And I'm not just talking physically. The closer I get to the Lord, the more I learn about the Lord, the more I understand I don't know. He's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I love that, by the way. I love the fact that he's getting bigger and bigger. Otherwise, heaven would be boring, wouldn't it? If we had him all figured out, we put him in our pocket. Those who think they have God figured out, 
who've got God all figured out in their pocket, the Bible shows that they're young and immature. Don't be one of those ones that chases that rabbit of who the 12th apostle is. We don't know. All right? Now, let's keep moving. We saw last week that the walls of the city were 216 feet thick, and the length and width and the height of the city was 1,400 miles on each side. By the way, that's a pretty, pretty big city, don't you think? But I'm going to give you another measurement. Tony brings this out in his book. If you ever got Tony's book on These Things Must Take Place, he brings this out. The volume of that city is going to be 2,744 million cubic miles. Now, again, we, we all go, ooh, ah, but we really don't even know what that means. But let me just ask you a question. Is there a lot of water on this earth? There's actually ways that people have measured a rough idea of how much water is on the earth. Listen again. The cubic volume of the New Jerusalem is going to be 2,744 million cubic miles. The total of all the water on the earth and our oceans is roughly 322 million cubic miles. It wouldn't even a quarter fill it. All the oceans wouldn't even a quarter fill it. But whenever we get caught up with the immensity of the city, we might miss something. The city is described as a perfect cube, isn't it? I mean, you look here in the scriptures, it's described as a perfect cube. This isn't the first perfect cube that we've seen. This is something I've just seen in my study this week that I'd never seen before. But the Bible says that the city is as long as it is wide and as high as it is long and wide. It's a perfect cube. Go back with me to 1 Kings chapter 6. Let me show you the first cube. First Kings chapter six. Look at verses 14 through 22. Solomon is building the temple now, according to the specifications of God. As you know, Hebrews said that the temple was built as a mirror or a copy of the heavenly temple. So Solomon built the house, verse 14, and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar from the floor to the house to the walls of the ceiling. He covered them on the inside with wood and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits in the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls. And he built this within as an inner sanctuary. Sorry, as an inner sanctuary as the most holy place. The house that is the nave in the front of the inner sanctuary was 40 cubits long. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar, no stone was seen. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar. And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary he overlaid with gold. So where's the first perfect cube that we see in the scriptures? The holy of holies in the temple of Solomon. I don't think it's any accident 
that the new Jerusalem is going to be a perfect cube, just like the Holy of Holies was. By the way, what was in the Holy of Holies? The presence of God. Yes, sir. No, 1,400 miles. 1,400 miles. Yep. Yeah. Actually, if you, as we said last week, if you took and just drew a 1,400 square mile, uh, 1,400 by 1,400 mile square, and tried to fit it on the map of the United States, it wouldn't fit without a corner sticking off somewhere. From New York to Miami is about 1,400 miles. From New York to Denver is about 1,400 miles. You could not fit it on the United States without part of it sticking off. And to give you an idea of how high that is, you're talking about, well, it's four times as far away in height as the, the space station is right now from the Earth. It would pass the space station three more times, the distance. It's big enough. It's going to, and we're all going to have plenty of room. We're going to, if we have time tonight, we may get into why is it so high. I have some speculation that might be fun, but we'll have to see how. Well, actually, let's go there now. It's my next page of my notes, and we have time. All right, why does it need to be so high? If it's literally that high in the space station, like I said, to get as high as the top of the, sit, of the city, you'd pass the space station three more times the distance that the space station is from the Earth right now. Why does it need to be so high? All right, here's the Bible answer. We don't know. But... Speculation. Remember, like I told you, whenever I speculate, I'm going to tell you it's speculation, but I only speculate from my understanding of the Scriptures. And I'm only going to build what I think from the Scriptures. Here's my speculation. That seems like a long, far ways away, especially for us ground-bound, gravity-affected folks. I think the Bible teaches that we might be able to fly. And there uh, are really good elevators. No, I think the Bible kind of hints toward that we may be able to fly. Please hear this as speculation, but I'm going to show you what I'm talking about. I, if not, we'll definitely be probably be able to transport from here to there. You know what I'm saying? You remember how what happened to Philip when he was, he was led by the Spirit out of Samaria down to, toward Gaza? He sees the Ethiopian eunuch, leads him to the Lord. He gets baptized. Next thing you know, he's in Azotus. He, he got there pretty quick. The distance was no big deal. We also know that Jesus was able to just come through walls, come and go in the body that he had. But also, we've already seen it a couple of times here in Revelation, and you might have missed it earlier tonight. At the beginning of this section here, in Revelation 21, verses 9 and following, John said that one of the seven angels who had had this, one of the seven bowls of the last plagues of God took him in the spirit, where? To a very high mountain. How did he get there? Go with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Let me just remind you of verse 9. This is after Jesus had said, you're going to receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You can be my witnesses all over. Verse 9, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Jesus was standing there on the Mount of Olives and what happened? He just went up. He just went up. They're all standing there looking up in the sky. Go to me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. 
Look at verse 2. Ah, we get verses 1 and 2. I just can't skip over verse 1. It's too cool. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. So whatever abilities Jesus' resurrected body had, it still had flesh and bones. They could touch him. He could eat. But when he ate that piece of fish, did anything hit the floor? Yet he could still pass through walls. The bodies we're going to have, Paul deals with that in 1 Corinthians 15, how the body of, of a seed that you put in the ground isn't what comes out. In the same way, the bodies that we've been given here aren't going to be like the ones that we have to come. When we get our resurrected bodies, they're going to be like Jesus's. And we've, I think we've been given a taste and a glimpse of what those bodies are going to be able to do. And personally, I think a city that high looks amazing to us. But in the bodies that we're going to have, I don't think it's going to be any that big of a deal. Go ahead and then we'll get to you. Isn't it interesting that the two people that are mentioning these bodies are John and Paul, who have both been transported to see those bodies? Exactly. What does Paul say? He said, I know a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, whether in the spirit or out, he's taken in the spirit to see things I can't even talk about. As we touched on last week, that's enough speculation for now. As we touched on last week, there's no temple in the New Jerusalem since God and the Lamb are its light. Because of this, there will be no night there, nor there will be any need to shut the gates. Fear will be gone. But I want to take you down a road, and I think we have time to do it. How can there be no temple in the new heaven and the new earth, when all through Revelation we've seen a temple in heaven. I don't know if you've caught this yet or not, and if you haven't, I want to point it out to you. The scripture here clearly says that there is no temple in the new Jerusalem. And remember, that's the eternal state. That's what we're going to call heaven from then on, because that's where God is, and He's going to come be with us. Remember, He's going to make a new planet, and all the other stuff's going to be gone, won't be remembered. He's going to burn up the existing one. That's what, you know, I only believe that because of the Bible and because of Ron's t-shirt and everything. But the, the earth that we know of is going to be totally destroyed, all right? He's making a new planet. This doesn't have any oceans on it. This huge city's going to come down and be on it. We're going to be able to come and go from the city, by the way. You're not going to just live just in the city. You'll be able to go around. At the same time, the Bible says there's no temple. Yet, we read tonight that, well, go with me to Revelation chapter 2. Sorry, Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, and look at verses 12 and 13. We already saw this tonight. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and on in my own new name. He was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here he's promising that whoever conquers, whoever has faith in Jesus will be a pillar in the temple of God in the New Jerusalem. Yet here we see that in the New Jerusalem, there's no temple. There's an answer to this. That's why we're going here. That's why we're chasing it. So relax. Go to Revelation chapter 7. Let me show you a couple other places that the Scripture showed us there was a temple in heaven. Revelation chapter 7, verses 13 through 15. And then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. 
And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they're before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his what? In his temple. And he who sits on his throne will shelter them with his presence. Go to Revelation chapter 11. Look at verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. Go to Revelation 15. Look at verses 5 through 8. After this, I looked in the sanctuary of the tent of the witness of he in heaven was opened, which is another way to describe the temple. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God. And that from this power, no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So how is there no temple in, in the New Jerusalem when the scripture says that there's been temples all along in heaven? But in the New Jerusalem, there is no temple. Yet we saw in Revelation chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, that there is. The answer, by the way, the answer is in Hebrews chapter 9. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Nope. Nope. Good guess. That's what he says that God and the Lamb are the temple. Yep. Well, okay. Stick with me. Hang on. But that's a good, that's a good guess. And... In one sense, there's some truth to it. But go with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jump over to verses 23 and 24. Thus it was necessary... For the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. In other words, he talked about how blood was splattered all over the things on the earth at the temple there. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. All right. So when Jesus, he didn't enter into an earthly temple to offer the sacrifices. Where did he go? into heaven itself. The temple of God was created to be a place where God would dwell. Actually, when we see in heaven, in Revelation, the pictures of the temple and the throne in the temple and the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, it's really just describing the presence of God. Where God is, is where the temple is. It's His presence which creates the temple. You see what I'm saying? It's his presence that creates the temple. And I don't think it's any accident that the New Jerusalem is the exact same kind of a cube as the holy place and the holy of holies in the temple. But when he makes this New Jerusalem on the earth physically, there is no need of a physical temple because God himself will be there, thus making the New Jerusalem, if you will, the temple itself. Because that's where God is. And and we'll worship with him right there. So was there a temple seen in heaven? Yes, but it was just a visible picture of the presence of God. But when he comes to dwell, there needs to be no temple like there was temporarily on the earth, which were copies of the heavenly things. The new Jerusalem, if you will, is the temple itself because that's where God dwells. And that's why it's a cube. Is there going to be a temple in heaven? No, 
And yes, we are the temple. Exactly. Go back to Revelation chapter three again and read that verse one more time and see how Revelation three actually answers it. Revelation three verses 12 and 13. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You get to be where God is forever and ever and ever, and you're part of the temple, the presence of God. That's such a cool, cool thing. Now, I'm just going to touch on this as we close tonight. Look closely back in Revelation, and we'll pick up here next week. Notice how kings will be in the new heaven and the new earth. And how people from many nations will be there. We're going to try to get into a little bit the fact that for eternity in the new heaven, the new earth, there's still going to be roles. There's going to be authority. There's going to be some that are over others. You ever thought about that? We've always thought that everybody gets to heaven and everybody's the same. The Bible doesn't teach that. When God created the angels, are all the angels the same? Do they all have the same roles? Neither will we. Well, how do you get to be... One of the more kingly, if you will, for eternity, by being the most humble here, being the most faithful here, to let God do through you what he wants to do through you here, because the first will be last, and the last will be first. All people that are jockeying for position down here are jockeying for the end of the line in eternity. The people that are letting other people get in line in front of them here on this earth, We'll be put in the front of the line for eternity. And we'll get into that in a little bit more detail next week. Thanks for coming. We'll see you then.